Hey, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for what he's doing. At this moment, I want to introduce our chapel speaker. Some rumors have said that he does cook the best chili around Sterling. He, he is our associate professor for biblical studies. He's the chair of a theology in our ministry department. Warriors, would you please help me welcome Dr. Milhouse. Well, as, uh, as many of you know, among other things, I have two traits that I find pretty annoying sometimes. I'm extremely introspective, which means that I often end up second-guessing second myself about everything that I do. And I'm a little socially awkward, which means that I'm pretty self-conscious about, uh, about anything that I do in a public setting in including this one. And what all of this means is that I'll go home after some event like this one, and I'll look in the mirror and I'll think to myself, what is wrong with me? Now, I know that some of you would probably like to start a list. I'd simply like to remind you that I control your grade. <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's hard to look in a mirror uh, it, 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 and, and to realize just how short I have fallen from all of the things that I wanted to be in this life. And I don't always know what to do with that. And sometimes I float toward despair. You know, I've been this way for a long time. I think there, there must be something wrong with me. Other times I try not to think about it. I get busy or I chase events and, and experiences so that I don't have to feel bad. And still there are other times where I just try to bluff my way through things. I don't really want people to know how I'm feeling so I act like I know what I'm doing. Or, failing that, I act like I just don't care. Now, I don't find any of these options particularly satisfying. I know there's something wrong with me. Did God make, mess up somehow when he made me? Did he make me different from everyone else? Well, that said, I actually know that I'm made in his image. I take comfort from that. Genesis 1, 20, 27 tells me that God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And the problem is that I don't really know what it means to be created in God's image. You know, what I do understand about that helps. But again, what if God messed up in my case? Why am I so different from everybody else? Why am I so odd? Why am I so broken? Well, here's another thing I know. This one helps to answer whether or not God knew what he was doing when he made me and affirms that he made me just the way he wanted. In Psalm 139, 13 and 14, it says, For it was you, God, who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. That I know very well. This is an incredible psalm that demonstrates that God didn't make a mistake with me. There is a mystery to me as a created being that can't help me or can't help but cause me to to just be in awe when I think about it. Now, I don't know if you just saw what I did there, but I just made a subtle shift in the way that I have found is is freeing and life-giving. I moved away from my inadequacies to the wonder of what God has done. Still, we need to set that aside for a moment, and maybe we'll come back to it, because the fact that I'm made in God's image exactly the way he wanted leads to an implication that, that I can't escape. And the answer to the question of what is wrong with me is that Someone else must have messed up. And what if it's me? What if it's me? You know, I don't always like to, to think that, but when I'm brutally honest with myself, I know that it's true. When I move into my introspective moments, I know how selfish I can be. I know that I've fallen short of what I aspire to, let alone of what God might demand of me. I know that I'm not capable of making the kinds of changes, the kinds of choices that I need to make without help. So it's no wonder that that I flutter between uh, despair, distraction, false bravado. You know, God didn't make a mistake, but I messed up with what he gave me. Sure, there are circumstances. And I can dwell on them. Why would God allow these things? Why did that person do that to me? But I find that dwelling on what others have done doesn't make me feel better. It makes me feel angry. And when I get angry at God, the world, or those around me, I end up just as alone as when I live in despair. Despair, distraction, false bravado, and anger. That's my life. No wonder I want to lash out at God, family, and society for making me the way I am. And at God, family, and society for not accepting me the way that I am. So I can't help but think, with all of that chaos, with all of that turmoil, that I'm missing something. And that's true. But I've learned that what I'm missing is not what I think it is. I've discovered that, that looking at who I am, trying to understand my inadequacies, or even trying to overcome them, simply leads to more despair, more distraction, more false bravado, and more anger. So the answer isn't what I can change about myself or accomplish through my action, I always, always, always fall short. Instead, I need to look somewhere else that can bring real change and exchange despair and anger for hope. And there's only one place, only one person I know who I can turn to. 
But what I find so surprising is that I end up turning to him with the expectation that he will fix my loneliness and despair, that he will fix my anger. And that's not necessarily what happens. Such things take time. I've discovered that turning to God involves understanding and being honest about who I am right now and about what God thinks of me right now. What does that mean? Well, I think it goes back to creation, to the, to the, to the, the fact that God created me. How, however, I, while I understand that understanding who made me is important, Jesus clearly wants me to see something more. And I find the answer to this in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus gives me that answer in three different parables. The chapter, though, it starts pretty ominously with accusations against Jesus by the the proper and the powerful. It says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were the lowest of the lows on society's scale. I don't think it's too far off to compare the tax collectors to, to how we view drug dealers. People who have no care for the damage that their jobs cause to human lives. Meanwhile, elsewhere in Luke, uh, the sinners are directly called prostitutes. And while the religious leaders probably had maybe a a broader category of people in mind by the word sinner, imagine our response to a religious leader who spends his time eating with drug dealers and prostitutes. And I think if we're honest, we'd be a little indignant about that too. But Jesus' response is firm and immediate. Through three successive parables, he emphasizes that even those who have gone drastically astray nevertheless have incredible value. First, he asks them to realistically consider what they would do for a wayward sheep. Verse 4, which one of you, Jesus says, having A hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays on it his shoulders, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that I that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. Over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. Jesus states this in a way that the the conclusion seems obvious. Of course they would go after that sheep. One wayward sheep is worth all of the aggravation that it takes to find it. One wayward sheep is worth the risk of leaving all the others unattended. And of course, once the sheep is found, everyone celebrates. Jesus emphasizes to them that there is more to celebrate when a sinner comes to repentance than there is in finding some lost sheep. Why? Because of the value inherent in the sinner. 
so much value that Jesus' own reputation means nothing to him in comparison. And heaven itself, and heaven itself rejoices at such repentance. I think this is worth pondering. Jesus finds incredible value in the tax collector and the sinner, in the drug dealer and the prostitute, despite the damage they have caused. Well, Jesus continues further, emphasizing the value of the one who is lost. He says in verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I have a healthy habit of losing things. If I lose something like my wallet, a credit card or, or some money, I'm frantic. And I'll bet that you know that feeling. First, I blame everyone else. Then comes the search. And I tear things apart. I'm looking for what I've lost. I look in places it possibly can't be. And I'm creating all kinds of chaos in the process. And when I finally found it, and it's always in the last place I look, because I stopped looking after that. There is incredible peace and joy. And that's what happens in Jesus' parable. The woman, what the woman has lost is so valuable that she tears the house apart to find it. And when she does, the party starts. Now let's think about that again. Jesus is so desperate to pursue the tax collector and the sinner, the drug dealer and the prostitute, because they are so valuable. One more parable. And it's the biggest. And it's one of the best known. We generally call it the parable of the prodigal son. It's also called the parable of the forgiving father. For my purposes today, I'm going to call it the parable of the desperate father. Verse 11. And Jesus said, There's a man who had two sons, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the field to feed his pigs. And he would, gladly have feed, he would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up. And go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he sent off and went to, so he set off and went to his father. 
But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and he's put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now, the elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he called one of the slaves and he asked what was going on. And he he replied, your father, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. And he became angry. And he refused to go. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave to you. And I have never disobeyed your commands. Yet you have never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my family or with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. The father said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost. And he's been found. Well, the first thing I'm going to do here is to set aside the older brother at the end of the story for another day. And I guess that's fitting because he already feels left out. I get that. I'm the older brother. The younger son's a tragic case. I mean, first he tells his father, I've been waiting for you to die, and you won't do it. So give me my inheritance now while I'm young enough to enjoy it. Nice kid. I'm not sure what motivates the father to grant this request, but he does. Jesus often uses extreme pictures in his parables, and, and, and that's the case here. But with the money now given, everything that happens next is entirely predictable. The younger son blows his inheritance on dissolute living. And in case we're not clear what that means, later in verse 30, the older son accused his brother of devouring his father's property with prostitutes. After the money is gone, a famine hits. And the young man can't get anything to eat, so he gets a job feeding someone's pigs. He's so hungry, he wants to eat pig food. And anyone who spent any time on a farm knows what that means. Still, no one gives him anything. Something changes. 
Jesus tells us that the man comes to himself. In other words, if the man had a mirror, he would look into it and say, what is wrong with me? What am I doing with my life? And he realizes that his father's servants eat better than he's eating. He can't even afford pig food. So he decides to go home, confess everything to his father, and ask if he can become one of his father's servants. There is no expectation of anything. We only see the man with a glimmer of hope that his father will have mercy on him. But that's not what happens. Verse 20. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Think about that for a second. When the son left, he basically told his father, I wish you were dead. Since you're not, give me my money. Imagine the hurt that the father felt. How would you feel? What would your response be? I think I know what mine would be, and I'm not proud of it. I'll talk to my kid when he apologizes properly, maybe, after I let him sit in it a bit. That's not what this father did. He sees the son a long way off. Was he looking for him? He's filled with compassion. He runs. He embraces. He kisses a pig feeder, emaciated and smelly. The son tries to apologize. The father ignores him. Instead, he turns to his servants in verse 22. Quickly, bring the robe, the best one. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he's found. And they began to celebrate. From the father's perspective, wherever the son went, his value to his dad remained the same. Sure, the consequences were real. The son has a lifetime of scars, and he no longer has any inheritance. But he is loved beyond measure. His father never wavered. I know our earthly fathers can't always be that way. And maybe never at all. I'm a father. I know how short I fall. But this isn't a story about fatherhood. This is a story about my value to God. Am I not worth so much more to God than a sheep or a coin? How can I miss the importance of what Jesus is telling me here? He kept his distance. Because I wanted it that way. Remember, part of my anger and despair is directed directly at him. I could never believe in a God like that. I've heard myself say that in my heart 
and out loud. But I found myself a nothing. I wasn't capable of fixing the despair in my heart. And no amount of anger made me feel better. No attempt to embrace what the world offered helped. I was alone. And I came to myself. I turned, and there he was, running to me, embracing me, kissing me with all the muck and the bad smell. I'm still not sure. How do I know this is real? There are holes in his hands and in his side. Not only did he just run to me, but he also died for me. All of what was wrong with me, he took upon himself and he set me free. And in case I still wasn't sure that that was enough, he conquered death and he lives again. And now he sits at God's right hand. And when I struggle with what I see in the mirror, I cry out and sometimes still alone and still angry, not even knowing what to say. And I find that he turns to the Father in heaven and he says, this one, he is mine. He, there is no condemnation. My blood paid the debt and he lives with me. I have infinite value, not because of anything I have accomplished. I have incredible worth because I was created by God himself who did not see fit to leave me in my brokenness. My identity is his and he is mine. I am free and whom the son of God sets free is free indeed. This is my story. It's all true unlike some of the embellishments that happen in class. It leaves out lots of details. Nevertheless, I offer it to you. This can be your story as well. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Like the younger son, come to yourself and turn. And you will see the God of the universe running to you. You don't need the world to affirm your identity. You no longer need to battle yourself and others with the despair and anger at your heart. Come to yourself. Turn to him. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. In the name of our Lord and Savior, the risen Jesus Christ.